You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the uh, studio with uh, uh, our friend, co-host, uh, Cam Robinson. Hi, Cam. How you doing? Glad to be here, Gary, as always. As always. Still working <laughs> on your 1960, is it a 66 uh, MG? You got it running, you told me? I am. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm running back from the uh, gas tank to the carburetor trying to trace leaks, and I'm, I'm right at the carburetor now, and, and uh, uh, if I can move to the ignition sometime this coming week, I'll be, uh, I'll be one step ahead from where I was last week. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Good. You know, I bought my own old vehicle. I bought a 1974 Honda CBF 350. It's it's a lot of fun, uh, but you know, it's not. Uh, it's Zen in the art of mo- motorcycle maintenance, just like Zen in the art of, right. uh, of English sports car maintenance. <laughs> you have to be very precise about everything you do and think about everything you do. You know, I haven't put a choke on a car for a long time, and now you have to. If it's cold, you got to put the choke on just that's a little right. bit in order to get that's, it started. See, you know what I mean. Right. And I have a little pet cock that I shut the gas off underneath the tank whenever I park <laughs> it, just in case. Right. And I have to take the key out to the left, not to the right. Otherwise, the parking light, uh, some kind of a, a parking, uh, the tail light will stay on. So. <laughs> I, I gotta pop the hood to turn the heater on, and heating was not <laughs> heating was an option on mine. So I gotta open the hood and open the heater valve. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Just about says it all. Well, you know, we're going back down south, down down under to Australia again. Our good friend Dan Bashford down there. We we did one with the Drangetta uh, influence in in Australia, and, and this one's gonna be at the request of my friend named Farrell. Farrell's a, a new fan who. Um, Made a nice donation too. Thank you, Farrell. And he's uh, he spent his own little bit of time in jail. He's uh, had a turnaround in his life. He he works uh, works in high steel now. Maybe up on the top of uh, uh, bridges and uh, buildings and things like that. I, I jokingly told him, I said, you know, you haven't lost your taste for the adrenaline rush, have you? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> which which I hate to say it, but I can't understand that. Uh, so uh, that's hence the two motorcycles. <laughs> that's right. So Farrell in particular, he asked about George Freeman. And so I looked him up and, and Cam looked him up. Cam did a whole bunch of research on George Freeman. He's kind of, he's, we did the The other was the uh, out of Italy. Uh, then Drangetta, of course, more based on the old mafia uh, lines that, and the stories that we usually do is about the mafia, but this this is more what we call affectionately call a non-Italian or a Peckerwood uh, organized <laughs> crime dude, right? <laughs> that's that's right. Had you ever heard that term before, Peckerwood? <laughs> I hadn't. You know, we we've uh, you know Al Capone had the American Boys, as we talked about on a, on a, yeah. another show. But yeah, and and there's always sort of in uh, the the non-Italian branch, like they had in Rhode Island. But the Peckerwood, I think, might be particular to uh, Kansas City. But it, I reckon <laughs> it might up. be. It might be. It might be in our kind of hillbilly ways. I always joke about my uh, hillbilly accent here, my my uh, Northwest Missouri nasal twang. <laughs> Is uh, uh, I was studying, I was learning Spanish one time, and uh, still working for the police department. And one of the clerks there, I was kind of practicing a little bit, and she says, "You know, says you speak 
Spanish with a hillbilly accent. I said, what are you, what do you mean? But I, I knew what she was talking about. It was all a good fun. But anyhow, on to uh, George Freeman. Um, we, I'm not talking about the COVID anymore. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's still not over and it won't be over for a while, but uh, I can get out and play golf again. I think a lot of people are out working again and you're going into work, aren't you? I'll, yeah, I'll be going in the end of this week. Yeah, we'll be okay, heading back into the office. Thought. Uh, like I said, they're playing golf again, so I'm out there on the golf course not putting out the extra one. And, uh, but uh, we're still putting out a high-quality product, as as you folks know, and, and we work hard to do that. And, and Cam's a big part of this, uh, find, doing this research and, and getting these really good, accurate stories out. It's it's important to have an accurate stories. Uh, and Cam is the guy. I was, you know, When I discovered you and you did your first research, I said, you know, this guy does not deal in myth and yeah. rumors and whatever he can find in the internet headlines he goes into it and and i know the fans out there appreciate that that was that was what really got me sold on you to begin with gary was it was getting getting the real inside scoop so that was that was why i reached out so yeah so anyhow let's talk about george freeman i, I see from uh all, all these are cam's notes but uh, let me kind of get this kicked off he was uh, kind of like all of our mob guys uh, uh, he's a little bit younger than the, the mob guys that we use, the old timers we deal with. He was born in 1935. Um, first arrest was in 1947, of course, as a uh, teenager, young teenagers, uh, for theft. Uh, you know, he, he uh, has small time jobs. He was a stable hand and does petty crime, ends up in a boy's home, uh, like a juvenile detention center. Yeah. You know, and they. Uh, I noticed that uh, a lot of boys were brutalized. They're brutalized by the older boys primarily, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes you'll have guards that'll brutalize those young boys. Those guards, there's men, certain pedophile men that will gravitate to those kinds of uh, places where they can do that. They did a whole movie about that with uh, Kevin Bacon. I can't remember the name of that, but uh, that's quite common, and, and that you know that traumatizes. These boys are already you know, behind the eight ball in many ways. And then they get put in uh, a detention home like that. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a gladiator uh, arena in many ways, and especially back then in the forties uh, and in uh, thirties and even the fifties. God, I remember when I was a kid, they were talking about if you get in too much trouble, you go to the Algoa reformatory. And, and I never did. Uh, you'd get threatened with it every once in a while. I never did anything that bad. It was not a serious threat. But there was a couple of kids that did, and, and it was not – they did not come back with fun and game stories. I know that. Yeah, you see this theme a lot with these guys is, is they the, – the guys you think of as being really tough, but, when, you know, they they as they go in as young kids, it's the, the experiences they have are just, just awful. Uh, yeah. You know, you hear about all kinds of things that happened when they were kids that really shaped who they would become. Yeah, that'll make a criminal out of anybody. Mm-hmm. Talk about a traumatic experience and then reacting to your uh, post-traumatic stress <laughs> disorder. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm not excusing uh, illegal behavior by any means, but sometimes or many times there's a reason for it. They're yeah. not just born with uh, a criminal mind. and It gets shaped and formed out of lack of opportunity and, and other uh Mm-hmm. Horrible things that happened to people as children, but anyhow, he uh, uh, he was a bright he was a bright young man, yeah. and, and which you know served him well. He stayed in the thug world. He, he spent most of the nineteen sixties uh, getting arrested and figuring out you know what kind of crime he wanted to get into. He was particularly yeah. good at 
betting on horse racing, setting odds on horse racing. Now, I've seen, I've heard of guys like that. They can really study those racing forms. Yeah. And you, 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 have you ever done that? Do you take a look at a racing form when you're getting ready to bet and uh, and try to figure out, you know, take it, find a good horse out of that? I, you know, I've I've been to the races once, and and I've tried to play the odds. I've not had uh, I've not had much luck. My my mother in law is honestly pretty good at it. She uh, she, she has good. she has done well, yeah. But uh, uh, I am not so much of a numbers guy when when it when it counts. Here, here, but, uh, here's some here's some tips on that for you, folks. Here's what I'm doing. I've not really won a lot of money, but I, I have, I have taken a couple of long shots. But I usually end up losing it all by the end of the evening because you keep going. <laughs> but you take a, 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 a low odds horse, uh, one of the favorites, like a two to one horse, and then you'll try to find a horse that comes in maybe at fifteen to one or twenty to one, a lot longer odds that has a really good jock on them that that has a lot of wins, and try to put some of those factors together, and then and then uh, take them, box them, what we call box them, maybe find three horses like that. You find another horse that that has a pretty decent jock on it and and has in between odds maybe six or eight to one and and then uh, do like a trifecta and then box them so whether it's uh they're one two and three horse so whether they come in one two and three or two three one or three two one or whatever combination they come in you're a winner and and you take one of those for like a buck on each uh each horse so you can do that for about oh i think it ends up being about a Ten or twelve dollar bet, and if one of the long shots come in comes in with the favorite, uh, in either whether it's first or second or third, uh, then whether it's a uh, maybe an exacta that's just two horses or a trifecta which is uh, three horses, that'll pay more. But you get those long shots coming in in the second and third. Uh, and with a favorite, why well, you can win some money on that hey, one bet. You're going a little fast here. I'm trying to take some notes on this. Next time you go up to Arlington, are they still running in Arlington. I, I uh, went up there years ago. Uh, let me. They've they had they tore down a track. I'm I I'll have to dig into it and call you back. They did they they did tear down. I can't remember which one they tore back down. It was it was a while back, but I'll I, I can't remember where the tracks are here. I used to go back in uh, Virginia Colonial Downs outside of Richmond, and uh, I went to the dog Arlington, tracks. Arlington's probably still going. It was a reasonably it, yeah, it was a big that was track, big yeah a big deal. The other Sportsman's Park they had up there. I know it's been torn down. It was over yeah that's Cicero. yeah yeah that's that's the one. So anyhow, uh, I kind of digressed on the betting on horse races, but. Uh, that's how he met this. He met another guy named Lenny McPherson that will be kind of become his partner in, in crime. Another guy named Stan Smith. Tell us a little bit about this Lenny McPherson. Lenny McPherson was had, had really established himself. Arlington is still open, by the way. I just double checked, and I'll be heading up there this weekend now, thanks to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lenny McPherson was a little bit older. He had established himself. He had really muscled his way into the in, into the criminal world. There, a lot of couple of key early murders he had he had committed during the during the 50s that are pretty well known throughout Australia and I don't they they're on Wikipedia so I don't need to go back in but he really worked his way up and by the 60s when he ran into George Freeman he was a pretty well known crim they call him and he sees this guy Freeman who's sort of bumbling around in the rougher aspects of the criminal world but he's he's damn smart and he can he can do what's you know the SP bookmaking the starting price bookmaking and he says to him you know George 
you're really wasting your talents trying to with all these robberies and all these you're just that's not you're not a you're not a mid-level guy you're you're a brainy guy it would be i guess like a lefty rosenthal trying to trying to knock over you know that it was that that kind of smarts and i guess lefty rosenthal would be kind of how you would would compare him lenny mcpherson had the operation set up to where he could bring on a guy like george freeman and get him established in a regular in a regular position they had he had casinos and so they set up their own betting parlors and casinos and he established George Freeman as his as his top guy setting up a betting and they basically owned the gambling market by the end of the 60s in doing this they had a, another guy Stan Smith who was the the muscle Stan was more of a hitman his name later rose in about 25 shootings during the 50s and 60s. So you get these three guys really coming together. Stan Smith was sort of more of the hitman. He was also a brainy, really smart guy. You've got Lenny McPherson, who was the muscle, and he was older than these two. And he, he sort of came into his own, created his operation, and then he puts these two young guys to work. So by the middle of the 60s, they're running all the all the betting throughout New South Wales. Yeah, I'm sorry. And what you also had at that time is the New South Wales Police Department was notoriously corrupt. That was There were major investigations throughout the years that would come much later. But, I mean, they had police on the payroll. They had police committing crimes. So between these three guys, the timing was really there. And they they got the operation going uh, by the late 60s. Yeah, I noticed that uh, at one point in time there... Um McPherson was on trial for murder, and he was found with a list of all the potential jurors for his uh, <laughs> jury trial. And, 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 you know, he had to get those from the cops. And, and any good organized crime organization, uh, any good criminal organization, to be successful, they've got to have good political contacts and good contacts with, with corrupt officials, uh, whether it be with the courts or the police. If you can do both like they did, like the outfit did in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, why, it's, it's great. You know, it's just... You know, that's the only way it really works for them is you have to have official kind of uh, uh, approval of that. I mean, the police and law enforcement can put down any kind of criminal organization at will if they want to. And if right. they don't want to, then they can they can foster it and, and help it grow and, and make and allow it to grow and, and really make it much bigger and more important than, than what it might have been. So uh, – so these guys, they had it going. I see they even right. got into drug smuggling back then, too. Right, yeah. Stan Smith was sort of in, in the drug smuggling. The the other two didn't, they weren't, they didn't, uh, McPherson and uh, Freeman did not, uh, they didn't appreciate the drug smuggling, I guess, but, but they allowed it because Stan Smith, he didn't lay his hands on it so much. He, he controlled a large uh uh, marijuana smuggling operation, then eventually moved into heroin. Their main racket was they controlled all the the gambling in Sydney, and in conjunction with that, like most operations, they had all the loan sharking. You know, if you've got the gambling, you might as well have the loan sharking also. And just like you had in in uh, America, you've got celebrities, and you've got, like you said, politicians, and everybody coming to their casinos. So they had the they had the the glamour and the sort of the, the the same aspects that we had in America, they had around their their casinos. They were they were sort of the guys in in the way that you would see in in Vegas. You would see in in like the Copacabana in in New York. 
McPherson and uh, George Freeman and Stan Smith, that was their operation in Sydney, basically controlling controlling things as the uh, throughout the throughout the '60s and into the '70s. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna mention that that uh, that their base uh, in New South Wales was Sydney. They were yeah. they were the mob in Sydney, Australia, and during this time, and and the Drangheta was in Melbourne. Uh, what we talked about, they they had that right. green gross grocers market in in Melbourne. What's interesting is is boy, marijuana must be a big deal over there in Australia. Everybody mm-hmm. must smoke pot over there or something. That's, <laughs> that's, that's all those Drangetta guys were into, were big-time marijuana uh, growing and smuggling, and they got into heroin and cocaine later on. And I see this guy's into in, in marijuana, and then he eventually integrates heroin. So, And, and I'm sure he would have moved on into cocaine if he was still around when the— when the cocaine hit, oh, and another thing in our last uh, uh, show about the drangheta and drugs over there, I think I started. I was mentioning that to get cl- cocaine out of Colombia, how did they get here? Did they go through the Panama Canal, which is dicey at best, or did they surely didn't go around uh, Cape Good? Uh, was Cape Horn? And I got a response from an Australia guy, and I can't remember his name now, and, and he remarked that, well, Columbia goes all the way through to the Pacific yeah. side. I didn't yeah. realize that until then. I had to get a globe out and look, and by golly, it does. So you can <laughs> have a And he named the port. Trip. I can't remember the name. There's a port, big port, on the uh, Pacific side of, of Columbia. So I was I thought it was just on the Atlantic side. So we, I stand corrected on that, and thank you to whatever wiretapper's name that was that corrected me on that. <laughs> we, we get a little myopic, and uh, we Americans, <laughs> geography is not, it's yeah. not our thing here in America. We we are as as the world likes to remind us we are we are not too good outside the uh outside of the continental united states yeah and look at me i'm just a humble little country boy from missouri in the middle <laughs> they want me to know about worldwide things <laughs> who are you telling <laughs> and what i like to say well i'm just a poor country lawyer i don't know much <laughs> <laughs> just hung out your shingle yeah. Anyhow, moving right along, I, who's this Stuart John Reagan in the 60s and 70s? He's one of those guys you get in the criminal world every once in a while. He's kind of a psychopath. He rises up, I'm going to take I'm going to take control of these things. And and you know, you get these guys every once in a while and you hear about them in different in different places. And so he starts building an, uh, a rival operation uh through the 60s and the 70s and he he really he does a lot of indiscriminate killing he's a really he's he's kind of a lunatic but the problem with a guy like reagan is they start drawing a lot of heat i mean obviously the cops will look the other way as long as as long as you're you're as long as murders take place within a certain sphere but this guy reagan was shooting people in the streets and he was and then eventually he was with uh, his girlfriend and he was supposed to babysit her two-year-old son and of course, the two-year-old son goes goes missing, just just disappears. And you know, Reagan was the last person with him, and Reagan was not fond of children. I mean, the guy was was not you know he was a criminal, but he was he was just a total psychopath. So it was basically he was it was known that he was responsible, and police were really starting to turn up the heat on anybody associated with him. To that extent, any the, the the entire criminal world because there was public outcry about well now the criminals are going after children well because McPherson was at the top of the 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 food chain he sent Freeman and Smith to go take it out uh, there was a one other guy up there with um 
I can't, there was, there was another guy, I can't remember his name, but basically McPherson said, we've got to get rid of Reagan. So Freeman and Smith uh, got the contract and went out there and took him out eight. They shot him eight times, once in the face for each person was killed and oh, wow. once in the face for the kids. So, you know, it's kind of like a, one of those symbolic hits that you see in, in the underworld. The organized crime does like to leave them. Either the, either the body's never found, which is a message in itself, or there's some kind of a message in That's how right. the body's found or something about it. So, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting. Now, here's what I find interesting is the outfit ends up sending somebody down to uh, to make connections with them. And yeah. I'd read that before, uh, and I'd looked into it a little bit, and this uh, kind of a, a minor guy wasn't exactly a— uh, a high up uh, well known outfit dude he was he was uh, more like a really good clean associate it sounds right. like uh, right uh, joseph dan testa he was a clean man he was a, a developer you know kind of a, a guy that they could he could buy property because yeah. he was you know yeah he could he could have stuff in his own name and and act as a straw for him and and things like that as as gambling was was getting big in Sydney. This is, you know, the 60s were at the time when the U.S., you know, 65 would have been shortly after Cuba closed down in 59. So they were looking for opportunities to expand. And the outfit was all over the all over the world. All, all of the, the mobs were. They had junkets that went everywhere for gambling. Yeah. Giancana had stuff in Iran and, and uh, That's right. the Caribbean, I believe. And I know out of Rhode Island, they were sending gambling junkets all over the Caribbean also. So it was, they were looking all over the place. And you had, you had uh, Angelo Bruno going to England. So there were, there were the small gambling parlors in England and they were doing the same thing in Sydney. I think that that's what happened is they sent this clean man who was a, a, a developer to go to Australia to look into and fear. So, of course, the first thing he instructs, he, he invests in is a, is a construction business. <laughs> so uh, he he was a, also a property owner throughout Florida and Chicago. So that's also not suspicious. But he who he answered to was Milwaukee Phil Adoricio, who was responsible for outfit gamblings. It, you know, he was right on. He was under Giancana and had gambling holdings in the Caribbean. That was in, uh, there's a book called um, Captive City, and that was written in the 60s, and Milwaukee Phil was was overseeing the gambling in the Caribbean at the time, so he would have been responsible for reaching out to Australia. And Testa answered to Milwaukee Phil directly. Being sent as an emissary to Australia makes, makes sense at the time, based on what Milwaukee Phil was responsible for. So Testa is is in Australia at the same time making contacts and in, and investing with McPherson. Shortly after that, in 1968, George Freeman and Stan Smith come to Chicago for six weeks under the auspices of staying with Testa to solidify business in the construction, to, you know, to work on, on things with the construction business. It's supposedly about the construction business, Correct. but really it's probably more about gambling. Yeah, they were looking to distribute video poker machines, and I think they were Bally video poker machines, and I think, you know, Bally was was uh, uh, outfit controlled at the time, I believe. I, I can't remember exactly, but Freeman and Stan Smith are in Chicago in 1968 for six weeks. If they're coming to meet with Testa, that means they are under the supervision of Milwaukee Phil. And so there's no record, obviously, of what they did 
for that six weeks. But if, if they're in Chicago, two international criminals who come to stay with an outfit clean man, I, I mean, I can only imagine that they might have rubbed elbows with some guys in Chicago. So I thought that that was a really interesting kind of tidbit. And the kind of stuff that you and I really like is, is when these guys internationally or these guys, these different organizations meet with each other. They kept that one on the down low. They, they knew enough, let's just keep these guys on the down low yeah. and, and not be taking them out in public and and having these public meetings and everything. And that was kind of, that was like, boy, I tell you, the 70s by then, they were like, uh, late 60s, 70s, uh, the outfit was at its peak, and they owned Chicago. They owned law enforcement up there. They mm-hmm. owned the court systems, and, and they were getting away with a lot of stuff. It wasn't until the middle yeah. 70s that, that anybody yeah. really started. Yeah, I mean, you had Bill Romer running around, but you know, they were just, there was way too much control of the government, uh, the local governments here, municipal. So I see eventually the government's going to turn around on them, huh? Yeah, you've got these, uh, what's called the Moffat Royal Commission in 1973. It was uh, named after a, um, a New South Wales Supreme Court judge, Ethel Moffat. It was very similar to the Kefauver hearings of the McClellan Committee, and it was a, a major attempt by the government to investigate organized crime in New South Wales. They called several organized crime figures, much like they did in the in Kefauver and McClellan, and they, they interviewed them. Uh, I couldn't find much of what they, they I, I found a, a few snippets but there was obviously no information given by anybody in organized crime I don't know if they have the equivalent of the fifth amendment but uh, I'm, I know they gave circuitous answers and, and didn't didn't say much but it really in seeing a lot of these guys on television or, or in the in the in the papers basically being being brought to the public it really did wake up people to a lot of the organized crime that was going on in New South Wales, and it really made made these organized crime figures much more public than they had been in the past, uh, and, it, and it sort of directed a lot of attention to a lot of the corruption that was taking place and the, the, the criminality in a lot of these places. I'm trying to figure out was uh, was casino casino gambling. They they were like us. They didn't really have casino gambling during these years. I think they had small legal gambling parlors like what they had in London. It may have been illegal gambling. I, I, that's where I was kind of up in the air because I saw them talk about legislation and I saw them talking about uh, gambling parlors. The legality from what I was reading was kind of up in the air, so maybe somebody can 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 clarify on that. Uh, and it, it might have been all underground, and because it was so corrupt, it was it was allowed. But they were very public about about having these gambling partners, and I know that the outfit was investing. I see that in 1976 they got caught in uh, a bribery attempt to members of the parliament to gain control of a casino licensing board. So they must have pretty well set up their gaming just like they have in the United States. Right. And, and, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit, like you say, it's like England. England had had uh, small betting parlors and small casinos for quite a while. They get this connection with Chicago during this time, and you know they're not—they're going to know about Las Vegas, and you know they're wanting to set up big casinos. They mm-hmm. know that the demand is out there, and yeah. And at that same point in time, why other states are starting to look in the United States, everybody's starting to look at gaming as another source of tax revenue. Yeah. They're getting tired of seeing all their money go out to Las Vegas and and being kept out there, and 
and they're all you know Missouri and and all the states in the United States are starting to do that and you control you get your gaming control boards and that's a that's a huge deal they need to, organized crime needs to get control of those gaming uh, yeah. those boards cuz that's who sets the standards that's who hires the investigators that's who reviews investigators work it's uh, I work for our gaming control board here in, in Missouri for a while and actually it was a contract uh, thing I had with them I didn't I wasn't an employee and and they controlled everything and they controlled it they had like a retired state trooper and a retired judge and some other businessmen on it so they uh, uh, they were pretty rigorous here in, in Missouri but if you can <laughs> if you can fit, get your own people po- appointed to that then it's Katie bar the door mm-hmm. you know they can hire a uh, a director of gaming uh, that is going to be much uh, run a much looser ship who will then hire people who will not do the investigations quite as good because you know you can either do a good investigation a background check on a licensee a potential licensee or you can do a bad one you know yeah. it doesn't Pencil take much yeah and uh, you know, do a good one why they'll you know they'll find out the dirt but if you do a, a half-ass one then you know you can slip <laughs> anybody in with a gaming license and and chicago had a ton of of experience by then in subverting money from the big legitimate casinos so yeah. i see a chicago influence here from them trying to get control of their gaming control board yeah yes but you know now that now that you see a lot and and this during this whole time you see this there there are pictures of 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 Testa and and a couple other Chicago uh, periphery figures back and forth on hunting trips and, and a lot of uh, and a lot of uh, investment coming back and forth uh, between between us and and I don't I don't think for a minute that 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 it was control i think there may have been money back and forth between chicago and australia like you said in an investment capacity because they knew who the who the key players were down there and it you know if if i were going to invest money in 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 uh uh, sydney in the in the 60s and 70s it would have gone through mcpherson and for gambling yeah and and i see in uh uh, george freeman's biography uh george freeman and autobiography yeah uh, (laughs) <laughs> he, they talk about him using a forged passport to go to Las Vegas and yeah. with Testa and, and uh, setting up these legal casinos. You know, Chicago, they were they were like all over themselves. Boy, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, be a partner in a legitimate casino down in Australia because that was 1978. And by 1978, that was right that was the year that we started taking them down. That was they were at their pinnacle. They yeah. were at their most arrogant top on control of big casinos in 1978, and it was all downhill after that. that that's By a good 80, observation. You know, they were booting them out, but uh, yeah. they stayed at the dunes, and everything was comped. Yeah, yeah. He brought he had he had uh, fifty thousand of his own cash, you know, because he he said. That was that was one of the one of the quotes in, in in the article I read is he said he did not he said do not take any money he said you know we're not going he said we will gamble on our own money do not take cash from anybody you know that was I, I guess I don't know if that's a, if that's an underworld thing you know they they know better than to than to accept cash from one another but uh, <laughs> I think it's a smart move on his part <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's exactly right believe me when. As the Godfather said, told the undertaker, you know, someday you'll be able to do a small service for me, and I'll take care of this for you. You know, that's, right. <laughs> that's how it works, man. 
Exactly. So, and who he may have, who he may have run into in the dunes is again that the the details of that trip are sort of loose. Uh, we know that that he was he was in there for for a couple days. That he ended up flying back and then ran into some trouble. But he could have he could have spoken to anybody while he was there. He could have any sort of emissaries while he was down there. So there are several of these opportunities he had when when he could have been speaking with whomever. You know. It just would have been nice to have been able to track his movements during certain periods when you know he would have he some great some really incredible meetings would have taken place. Kind of interesting that uh, I send your notes that he got arrested uh, yeah. <laughs> on his way back for having with not having a passport that he left. He, he'd been staying in San Diego and he claimed he left it in somebody's home in San Diego. Yeah, they, that was that the was, uh, that was kind the, of interesting little story. He. Well, this was on his trip to uh, Las Vegas. Somebody else's passport that they had, they had well, forged somebody, his picture. Somebody, wasn't even his. Yeah, they, they had figured they had out who he forged was. Forged his picture, the and so they realized who he was after he had left Las Vegas, and the FBI stopped him and arrested him. The they were staying at, a, at somebody's home in uh, in San Diego. I'm not sure where they, where they picked him up, but the passport was still at this home, and he said. Uh, he called his uh, he called one of his uplines who was still at the home, and he said, "Burn the passport now. Just burn it. I, you know, because it's one thing to lose your passport; it's another thing to have a forged passport." They burned the passport, and uh, you know, so they held him up. They realized who he was. They knew he had a criminal record. What's what are you doing here? Blah blah blah. Um, you know, I'm just just here on vacation. While he's in FBI custody. Testa calls uh, his uh, one of his uh, uplines, one of the guys that, that he's there with. Testa says he can give him two hundred forty thousand in cash right now, and if he gives him a couple days, he can come up with another two hundred fifty. Just let him know what he needs. That guy was going to be <laughs> was going to be a value to the outfit, wasn't right. he? I they, mean, they wanted to do yeah. everything they could to take care of him. Yeah, I imagine that that two hundred forty was what Testa had on hand, and the two fifty is what is what he could get shipped in from Chicago really quickly. You know, because they couldn't find the passport, he was, they just deported him for illegal entry. They, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a crime for illegal passport. They just deported him. And he was uh, not allowed back, as I understand. Yeah, hey, I imagine. Yeah, he dodged a bullet in getting rid of that passport because, yeah. they'd have, you know, they'd have, they love to put him in the courts and hold him there mm-hmm. without without bond because you know he's a foreigner and over here without you know uh, under a, a fake name and everything so he's liable yeah. to, to run and 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 then you can put pressure on him and you can hold him and keep those hearings put off for months and months and he's sitting in in the uh, uh, metropolitan correctional center out there in San Diego or <laughs> and, uh, and it's hot and it's dirty and he doesn't know anybody <laughs> yep. So uh, yeah, that sometimes you can soften a guy up a little bit like that. Yeah. So what finally happens to him? This whole time, this is all going on. Uh, yeah, because we we know that whole casino thing with Chicago is going to fall through. Everything yeah. falls through for Chicago. Yeah. They're not going to be able to do any more business after yeah, seventy-nine or eighty. Right. That's that's right. So the the eventually Freeman and and Smith and uh, Freeman's getting a little older. He's always been a a, a ladies' man. So in 1979, he was messing around with uh, this guy's daughter, this guy named Jackie Freeman. George Freeman is uh, walking to his, I guess, no relation. So George Freeman was walking to his home uh, one night, and he was shot in the neck. The gun jammed as he was laying on the ground. George Freeman gets up and starts chasing him. You know, you bastard. 
and the, uh, the, the, the shooter runs off. Uh, it turns out it was this guy, uh, 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 Jackie Freeman. He was the father of, of one of George's uh, younger girlfriends. Uh, he was later shot in his driveway. The, shoot, the, the man who was, was the alleged shooter was later shot in his driveway. But shortly after this, George Freeman sort of retires. This, while all this was going on, uh, he, was, he had been slowly getting an addiction to Demerol. Not, not, in, not heroin or anything, but what Demerol was sort of a, a classier thing. But just through the years, he had, he had, I guess he had had different, you know, some pain. I think he had had a, a back injury, but he, he had had an, a Demerol addiction. He just had it through the years. He died uh, of lung cancer in 1990. He was a real heavy smoker, but he more or less retired in 1979, and it was really on the periphery. I think he still kind of like uh, kind of like a lefty Rosenthal. He still he still played numbers and all, but he sort of, uh, as I understood it, he he came out with his with his biography. But as far as the real criminal world, there's not much said of him after. 1979. I think that he 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 lived off off of numbers and 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 gambling. Then Stan Smith's son uh, overdosed in 1979, and at that time he sort of stepped away. Also, uh, he had a, a large drug empire that he sort of turned over. So he had a lot of money. George Freeman had a lot of money. Stan Smith got a lot of religion. He was born again, and he lived the rest of his life as a as a very wealthy, true believer. Uh, Lanny McPherson continued in the, the criminal empire. He was older than the other two, but he, he continued. He was, he was the boss, so he, he ran things from a distance. He was sentenced to prison in the 1990s. He attacked a business rival uh, and died of a heart attack in jail in 1996. Uh, but he, was, he lived in a, a nice home with, with bulletproof glass and large gates, and his neighbors all had nothing but nice things to say about him. He died in jail of a heart attack. He was kind of the Tony Accardo of right. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, Sydney, absolutely. Sydney crime family without, uh, but he ended up going yeah, to jail and they got him in the end. They never did get him, but uh, he retired. He kind of became the professor emeritus. That's if you exactly will, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I, I got a feeling, but uh, he still was. Uh, Sentenced on a last sentence, it looks like on an attack on a business rival. So the old man must have stayed after him pretty good. <laughs> he, he did. He <laughs> Those did. Aussies are tough down there, man. Oh my, Those yeah, Aussies are some tough dudes down there. They don't play. <laughs> well, considering you know they came out of uh, uh, out of the prisons of England, England emptied their prisons into Australia and got it going. So it's uh, I think it's historically been a pretty tough bunch of guys down there. To, do whatever they do down there, yeah, whether think, they're uh, businessmen or criminals or in the military or whatever. I think we were founded by people who didn't want to pay their taxes, and Australia was founded by people <laughs> people who didn't, people who never paid their taxes. <laughs> yeah, the whiskey rebellion. You know, they just didn't want to pay the taxes on the whiskey they were making. <laughs> That's right. Well, the government turned that one around, didn't they? <laughs> if you didn't have to pay the taxes on booze, it would be about like 10 cents a bottle of whatever, 20 cents. They can make it for nothing. It's all taxes. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. Uh, you guys down in Australia, we got another one that we're going to do. It's going to be about the great bookie robbery, which sounds kind of interesting. Uh, so you can look for that to be going up one of these days. We'll put this one up. First, put this one up. 
pretty soon. Uh, you know, and I say that it's there's you never know what the time lag between the right. time we record these things and when they go up. <laughs> I figured out. <laughs> I am finally. I, I put up so many over the last couple of months that uh, I don't have a whole lot left in the can i'm trying to get some back in the can yep. now so <laughs> some some backup so i can all of a sudden take a month off and put a whole bunch of them up there ahead uh, i'm only staying one week ahead of myself now i've got one up for next monday and uh we just had uh, we just have joe the shark lopez was just up he was an interesting oh guy. my god you had joe lopez that's yeah that, he's, that. he's up there he it just went up so I, you, right, you yeah. have to go listen to him he tells he tells a heck of a uh story about the outfit and uh cocaine dealing so you always always believe that the outfit the mafia does not deal in cocaine directly well he's got a better story about that in out of chicago i usually uh i usually get all the updates i hadn't uh i hadn't seen uh anything just yet but i've been pretty pretty crazy busy with this last couple uh couple days <laughs> no you have <laughs> Especially with the rerouting of the trains. We won't even go down that path. That's right. <laughs> and I told you my son, they had the same problem in L.A. and, and Port, or, uh, Seattle, too. So, oh, well, that's been a hell of a year, hadn't it? Yes, 2020 sir. is one for the books. <laughs> <laughs> they can have it. All right. Good night, folks. Good night, Cam. Thanks Good a night, lot. Gary. Yes, sir. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from... PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Sabella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the, uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. <laughs>